listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. Hi, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you'd like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course, and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars Wednesdays at 7 p.m. What makes specially modified Fords consistent winners in open competition? Let's ask Dan Gurney, one of the nation's top racing drivers and twice winner of the grueling Riverside 500. Dan, why do you drive Fords? Oh, it's just because I want to win, and Ford's a winning car. What makes the 64 Ford a winner? You can't beat its durability. When I take the starter's flag in a Ford, I know it'll be running just as strong at the end of the race as it does at the beginning. Stamina, that's what it has. It rides like a car that costs lots more. That's where I drive a Ford on the highway. Ford enters its cars in open competition to put its cars, in addition to its laboratory and test track programs, to an intensity of testing no proving grounds alone can equal, and to prove to everyone that Ford has changed. See for yourself how much Ford has changed. Test drive a total performance Ford at your Ford dealers and try total performance for a change. Okay, listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, this is a live radio show. Really, it is, isn't it? Hey, Bill, how are you doing tonight? Live somewhere underneath the car, it's Nostalgic Radio. And cars. And cars. <laughs> and cars. Okay. Hey, if you guys want to send us an email, go ahead. Do so at golfstreamradio at gmail.com. Golfstreamradio at gmail.com. And uh, send us your questions, and we'll answer them if we can. And let's see what else. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's uh, Wednesday night, so it's open mic night at Naughty Nancy's. That's, uh, Nautical Nancy's? Nautical Nancy's. That's right behind the studio here on uh, right on the trail here. It's, uh, we're 706 North Myrtle Avenue. We're a quarter of a mile north of Drew Street on the left, right? I thought we're doing a pizza tonight. I forgot. Maybe I'll call up. Okay, my bad. Later. You Turn can call break. him up? No, not right now. Okay. <laughs> okay, anyway, and let's see what else we got. Oh, yeah, it's testing two nut at Sunshine Drag Strip. So how do you out there to uh, Hazley Hood and all the rest of the guys out there scorching the track and burning some tires? they got some daylight left, so it uh, should be pretty fun. Anyway, hey, have I got a guest for you tonight. I have another fascinating, legendary race car driver. This is a guy I used to read all about. And of course, everybody knows I'm a Ford guy. It's no secret. This guy raced a lot of Fords. He raced in the United States. He raced in Europe. He raced all over the place. So we'll introduce him a little bit later in the show. I'm going to keep him a surprise. 
And we've got a couple good songs for you, some vintage stuff. So, hey, Bill. Bill. Yo, Bill. Hey, got that uh, record player all queued up? There we go. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I am just a devil with love and spare. So Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. How I wish that there were more than the 24 hours in the day. Even if there were 40 more, I wouldn't sleep a minute away. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every deal. All you need is strong heart and a new steel. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-armed bandits crashing. Almost holds down the drain. Fever, Las Vegas, turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime. If you see it once, you'll never be the same again. I'm gonna keep on the run, I'm gonna have me some fun. If it cost me my very last dime, if I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm gonna give it everything I've got Lady luck, please let the dice stay hot Let me shoot a seven with every shot Sign Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva, Viva Las Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on Westway Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. 
So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Krabby's Beach Walk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Krabby's Beach Walk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Okay, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, we are back, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We are live in downtown Clearwater. Also... If you want to send us an email, golfstreamradio at gmail.com. Or, hey, you can even go to your computer and Google Tan Talk. That's Tan, T-A-N, Talk1340.com. And we are streamed live. And right now i got my hands wide open. Okay, so you can see me on the, uh, what do we have here? The uh, Like Touchdown Jesus. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> We're on the, uh, the uh, radio cam. Is that what we call this thing? I don't know. Something like that. That's the radio webcam. Okay. Hey, I want to say hi to a couple of people out there. Hey, and you know what? Did uh, I last week we mentioned uh, we had uh, TV Tommy Tybo, TV Tommy Ivo on. What a great show that was. He was super. A couple of weeks ago we had Sam Posey. A couple of weeks before that we had Mario Andretti. So we got some really, really, really fascinating people that we are going to get on our show and have had on our show in the past. And we are coming up on our anniversary show here in two weeks. Okay. Next week, my next week's guest is. Brock and Pam Yates. So that should be a really good uh, show because he's a very knowledgeable guy. He's also a racer. More of a uh, journalist, I guess. But uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting him on a number of occasions up at Amelia Island, some of the other racing events. So I'm looking forward to have Brock and his wife Pam on the show. And, of course, we will be talking about the infamous Cannonball Sea to Shining Sea races. Okay, We've actually had a couple of alumni to that. We've had Judy Stropis on. We've had, uh, let's see, who else? Uh... Well, tonight's guest, obviously, and next week's guest. Uh, my memory's running short. Maybe I have Alzheimer's. I'm not even sure. I'm losing my mind here. But at any rate, and uh, hey, our couple sponsors we got tonight. We got our buddies over there at Cop Cars Online. So if you need a really reliable, dependable government vehicle, give my friends at Cop Cars Online a call at 727 536 2677. 536 2677. They got cop cars, they got vans, they got trucks. You might even get a tank out of them. I'm not sure, you know, or a barricade vehicle. And anyway, say hi to my friends Mark and John, and you never know, you'll get a discount. Also, my other friends, Frank and Mike at Brothers Auto Sales up in Palm Harbor on US 19, 727-938-9235. That's 727-938-9235. If you need a quality used car, good car, okay, give these guys a call. They're really conscientious about what they buy and what they sell and how they take care of their customers. That's Brothers Auto Sales, 727 938 9235. They're up on US 19. And mention my name here, Robert Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and maybe Mike or Frank will give you a super deal. Also, don't forget, it's open mic night at Naughty Nancy's, 446 3717. So bring your ukulele, your guitar, whatever you got laying around, any kind of musical instrument. Just bring your voice, bring your vocal cords, and have some fun and some great food. And we will have a huge party over there in two weeks on our anniversary night. I think that's the 18th. I'm not sure. But I just turned my phone off, so I don't have access to my calendar. But I'm pretty sure that's when it is. All right. Hey, what else we got on that uh, little uh, music box? Okay, some more cool vintage music. So this is an oldie buddy goldie. Oldie buddy goodie. Oldie goldie. Let me tell you a story about a bold wheel. Now, some of you may not know, but a bold weevil is an insect. And he's found mostly where cotton grows. Now, where they come from, <laughs> nobody really knows. But this is the way 
The story goes, the farmer said to the bull weevil, I see you're on the square. Bull weevil said to the farmer, say, yep, my whole darn family's here. We gotta have a home. Gotta have a home. The farmer said to the bull weevil, Say, why'd you pick my farm? The weevil just laughed at the farmer and said, Say, we ain't gonna do you much harm. We're looking for home. And the bull weevil spot him a lightning bug. He said, hey, I'd like to make a trade with you. Cause you see, if I was a lightning bug, I'd search the whole night through Surgeon for home I'd have me plenty of homes And the boy we would call the farmer And said You better sell your old machines Cause when I'm through with your cotton <laughs> You can't even buy gasoline I'm gonna take me a home Gotta have a home And the bull weevil said to the farmer, his farmer, I'd like to wish you well. Farmer said to the bull weevil, yeah, I wish that you in looking for home, looking for home. Ah, you have a home, all right. You have a home. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about Naughty Nancy. No, this isn't a story about a bad girl. This is a truth about a great place to eat and hang out. Naughty Nancy's Food Shack, located at 700 Eldridge Street in the downtown Clearwater area, is a quaint little place nestled under some huge oak trees serving great food and drink and a wonderful, friendly atmosphere. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. They have 10 daily specials as well as many different styles of cooking from Cajun, New England, Country Gourmet, and even Short Order, prepared just the way you want it. So check out this groovy little dew drop in right on the trail. So jog up to our front door, ride up on your bicycle, drive up in your car, or pull up on your motorcycle, and visit my friend Nancy and place your order. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. Hey, mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars and you might get a free drink. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. As most of you know, I'm in the car business, and often I need cars towed. Well, Kotaka's Towing has all the trucks and equipment to meet your needs. Whether it's long distance, short distance, or just around the corner, they can get it done. Kotaka's Towing, located at 1141 Court Street in Clearwater. Also, they have a full-service repair and body shop to meet all your automotive needs. So give my friends Lefty and Joey a call at Kotaka's Towing at 727-447-1952. And be sure and mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you might get a discount. As the cars stand on the starting grid, Cougar team captain Dan Gurney is asked about the Trans Am's prospects. What about the Trans American Sedan Championship Series as a circuit in the United States? Do you think it'll be successful, Dan? Oh, I think this is very much the beginning, and it's just going to mushroom. I think it'll be great racing. What do you think the big appeal is? 
more people can identify with the cars, and uh, they are racing on road circuits, which is what the cars are built to run on, and uh, the competition is going to be very close. This should be great. Jones and Gurney are on the front row of the 32-car field, but the competition is extremely close. All right, we are live back at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We have our guest will be with us in a few seconds, but let me tell you a little bit about this guy. This guy this evening has won races. Oh, and has he won races? He's won races at IndyCar, NASCAR, Can-Am, Trans-Am, F1, okay? I mean, just all over the planet, all over the world, okay? He has been, he's even done some soft flat racing. He's raced at Bonneville. That's how he did a couple experimental stuff when he was younger. He's done some drag racing, Okay, and he's a member of the Motorsports Hall of Fame. It gives me really, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to my show this evening the legendary Dan Gurney. Dan, are you there? I sure am, Robert. How are you doing? You have an you have an enormous fan base. I have got a multitude of listeners tonight. I spread the word real heavily last week, knowing that you were coming on the show. So this is going to be a great show. I'm really excited, and so are my listeners. Oh, I'm so. honored. Thank you. Anyway, so tell us about the early years. You gotten started back, I guess you're from what, Long Island, New York, and then you moved to Riverside, California, and then you were uh, basically hooked on racing when you went to a couple of races and hung around some car guys, and kind of like your early hot rider, right? After I, yes, I was. And uh, after I got through with my uh, obligation to Uncle Sam, why I, I came back and... Uh, it was still amateur road racing in those days, and I, I uh, bought a used uh, sports car, a Triumph, and uh, that was the beginning. That was 1955. Wow! Now you uh, tell us about the days. Now I didn't know this. I was just reading this up here a minute ago. You did some. Uh, you played around in the Bonneville Salt Flats for a little bit. I threw that in at the last minute because I just found that out. So you had a couple of uh, uh, high speed cars there. Well. <laughs> We, uh, I mean, Bonneville was uh, a destination that all of the hot rod guys were hoping to reach, and uh, we decided to do it, and uh, we took uh, four cars to get there, but uh, oh, it was a wonderful trip. What kind of car were you racing back then, uh, and what kind of speeds well, were you obtaining? You know, we were racing, we, we had uh, one fellow, uh, Raymond Torres, was the guy who owned the engine, and Skip Hudson owns the car, and I did the driving. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, What kind of engine was it? Was it a flathead like everybody else was running back yeah, in that day? It was a flathead. Okay. Uh, Edelbrock heads and a manifold and uh, three carburetors, and we ran it on methanol. We didn't know how to run nitro at the time. So uh-huh. We ran 130.43. Wow, and what year was this? This was like early 50s, wasn't it? Or like 55, 54, 55, somewhere around there? I'd say more like 50, 51. Oh, 51. Okay, so that was real fast back in those days then. Well, we uh, uh, Fran Hernandez ran 160 in the same class, but he uh, he was one of the tops in those days. Okay. And then you did a little drag racing. What was that all about, and how did you get involved with that? That was all before the uh, TR2 days, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I drove uh, at Orange County Airport, which became John Wayne Airport uh, here in Southern California. And uh, that was where I'm trying to think of the fellow's name, O.J. somebody uh, 
started, it was actually in some of the first drag racing in the whole nation. And I drove a 27T with a flathead in it owned by Don McLean, another friend of mine. So uh, he went on to become a U-2 pilot, among other things. But, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so, like, what was it like back in the day? Did you guys have any idea what you were getting into? Of course not. Of course not? <laughs> no, it was, uh, there was a huge amount of freedom and uh, not quite so many people here. And uh, a lot of it started racing at night uh, at around drive-ins. You know, drive-in restaurants were uh, really going strong at the uh, after World War II. And uh, oh, it, was, it was, for a hot rod guy, it was like being he- in heaven. Okay. Did you, uh, who are some of the other famous guys you hung around back in those days? In the early pioneer days of uh, drag racing, and uh, and you probably went out to the dry lakes too, out there in uh, Southern Cal, right? Out no. I, I did. We went up to uh, El Mirage, it was called, and uh, but uh, and we, uh, when we climbed up, the, there's one hill to the Cajon Pass. In those days, about uh, ten cars would be sitting on the side of the road with steam coming out of the radiators because <laughs> they couldn't make it all the way up <laughs> without wow. overheating. But uh, uh, they were just great days. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of people who would do it. Uh, there was a, a while, a time where uh, the motorcycles and the cars were both top speed, uh, going for top speed, and it was right about 130 and a quarter, and uh, it went back and forth. Uh, Chet Herbert was a, a motorcycle uh, guy uh, who made uh, roller camshafts, and uh, I don't know. One of the more famous uh, around here, one of the more famous uh, group or family were called the Bean Bandits. And it was a bunch of Mexicans who were very good at uh, making their car go fast. And uh, they were famous here in Southern California. Wow. That's neat. That's good story. Then how'd you get involved? How'd you make the transition from, from the hot rods into the sports car racing? Uh just by kind of leaving no stone unturned, uh, I, uh, we used to hang out where the people that owned cars would spend the evening, and we'd try like the Dickens to get to know them or to to uh, sell them on the idea that we should be driving their cars. And uh, and along about '53 was the uh, a fellow named Harry Morrow who ran a a bookstore in San Fernando Valley. He actually built what is now Willow Springs Raceway. And uh, that was a place It took us about, it's about two and a half hours from where we are now. But uh, we'd go up there hoping that somebody would be there and that it would turn into an opportunity. And uh, most of the time it didn't. But uh, finally it was on an occasion, uh, it was an opportunity, and that was the first stepping stone to uh, getting into what you know, looked like the big time to us. So, how many? So, when you raced the TR three, you were you was it like an SCCA event back in then in those days over yep. there? Okay, it's called the California Sports Tour Club, and uh, I raced it twice and uh, realized it wasn't competitive, and uh, I went and uh, traded it in on a little Porsche. Speedster. Oh, okay. I raced it four times, and then I was broke, so I had to quit. Uh, and 
that's when we started looking for other cars to drive. Now, had you pretty much kind of honed your skills and kind of made a name for yourself as a driver at a very early age at that point before? Because I know following in 1957, that's when you got your ride. A big break came for you. You got a ride in a Ferrari, right? Yes. Uh, well, I was trying to hone skills. Uh, my friend Skip Hudson and I uh, made a, a solemn vow that uh, when we were timing each other with a stopwatch, we would be as accurate as humanly possible. And we'd stake out a track in uh, Orange Groves on the outskirts of town and uh, or uh, going up a hill. We used to call it the Burma Road. We went up a dirt hill and... Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, once I could relate a driving style to what the watch said, uh, I was, you know, that was a very important element. Now, you were, um, like, I was reading one, one place there. When, so this was all done basically on road courses around Southern California. Did you venture out of, outside of California back in the early days before no. you really got hit the big time, so to speak? No, uh, not really, uh, although, and it seemed like uh, once uh, I couldn't afford to do anything with my own car, well, it seemed like there was a drought there for darn near, uh, gee, it must have been three years. We were still trying. I was, and uh, I did do one motorcycle event uh, later on, but uh, or twice, the Big Bear Run. That was a lot of fun, but... Uh, you know, it was all trying to be in shape for opportunity if if it ever knocked on the door. Uh-huh. I, I felt that that was terribly important, so uh, I tried to be as ready as we could. So now then, and along comes 1957, and along comes the Riverside Grand Prix, and then you get a chance to ride, drive this gentleman's, uh, I can't pronounce his name properly, but it was an Italian guy's Ferrari, correct? Yes, Frank Arciero. Okay. And, uh... Who bought a, some of the collection that Tony Paravano, another Italian, had? Anyway, uh, I, that was a big opportunity, and the stepping stone to that was in a Corvette. I ran, I won a Corvette race before that, after having met the fellow up at Willow Springs and sort of setting a new record up there with the Corvette, and and that was the stepping stone to Ferrari. And with Frank Arciero owned, and then there was a Ferrari uh, importer in New York City, and he kind of kept track of who was doing well in Ferraris at the time. So that-, that was like a farm system for Ferrari. And I, uh, I uh, would you? I'm sorry. All right. Excuse me. That's okay. Um, was that Chinetti? Is that who you're talking about? That's right. Okay. Luigi Chinetti. Okay. Uh, and uh, so that was another one of the stepping stones. And uh, pretty soon, uh, Luigi asked me if I would, in 1958, would I go to... Uh, in the meantime, I won several races with Frank Arciero's 4.9 Ferrari. And then uh, Luigi said, would you come to... Would you run at Le Mans with uh, Bruce Kessler as your teammate? And... Uh, that I then got to Europe. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
It, it kind of seemed like a drought for a long time, and then it started coming like an avalanche all at once. Yeah. Now, Riverside, well, it's a, there's an interesting article in, in, on the Internet, and it talks about how you basically, there, uh, I guess it was uh, Ken Miles and maybe Phil Hill had said that that car was very difficult to drive, and you managed to navigate that thing around the racetrack, coming in second only to this other guy that used to be real good friends with, a guy by the name of Carroll Shelby. Yes. And uh, uh, what was Carroll Shelby like on the racetrack? I, he was uh, he was probably a lot better than you think. He was he was very good, very successful. Um, so I'd say uh, he, he used to complain about having uh, heart trouble all the time, but uh, it didn't seem to affect him during while he was racing. Interesting. Well, the reason I say that is because one of the other questions I'm going to ask you a little bit later, too, I might as well ask you now, is when you drive, I know because my little experiences with club racing, I always try to find a driver, a guy that I like to kind of pair myself with and kind of race against. So who were some of the drivers during that era, the 50s, and then we'll get into the 60s and and then and maybe the early 70s, because I know you stopped around 70, but who are some of the drivers that you like, you, you like to race against? You know, In other words, you knew you could trust those guys, you knew the guys every move, and it was just fun to kind of you know race them. Well, when you're in, uh, at that time, there were different classes. Mm-hmm. So in the class where there was a fellow named Bob Oker who was uh, very good. I mean, as you're working your way up the, the, the ladder, so to speak, uh, you've got to seek out the ones that are the best in class and see if you can uh, cover them. And then uh, hopefully that, that'll open up something for uh something bigger, and that's kind of the way it worked. Um, I'm trying to think of the one who was Jerry. Somebody was the Corvette uh, ace out here. There were quite a few Corvettes, and they had their own race. And then uh, Bob Drake was very good out here, and he uh, he stepped aside on Frank's 4.9 because he wanted to drive a an Aston Martin at the time. Um, let me think. Um Old, uh, of course, Shelby, Phil Hill, uh, Richie Ginther was another one. Uh, How about Sterling Moss? Was he in there with you all the time in the mix? No, he was in Europe at the time, although okay. on occasion he would show up over here. And uh, so that was great when you got a chance to uh, see how you stood against him. Now, uh, later on, I had the great, great... Uh, pleasure, I guess, but I don't think of a better word, but uh, Sterling and I shared a car that drove the same car in a race, uh, a thousand kilometer race at the Nürburgring in Germany, and we won the race, and that was a terrific thing, and another time we shared a car in uh, at Sebring, Florida, and so uh, I did get to know Sterling really well and had great respect for him, and uh, we still uh, communicate all the time. That's good. That's good. Um, did you like when you when you pair up with let's say someone like Sterling Moss or let's just say uh, another driver? Do you is that something that the, basically the team owners pick, or is that something that you the drivers can kind of you know have an, some input into that? Because are there you know some drivers are a little bit more compatible with one another than others in terms of driving style? Would that be a fair statement? Oh, it's a fair statement. Uh, in our case, uh, Sterling was of shorter. Uh, height or stature and uh we ended up with a compromise which was that he had a seat that fit within my seat and when he got out of the car he'd take his seat with him 
and I get in the seat and I fit it fine. And when uh, it was time for me to get out and his, his he to get in, or he'd bring his seat along and get put it inside my seat. And so that that worked out fine. But Sterling had uh, he was a, a superstar at the time, and uh, I knew that uh, if I could sort of put out the sort of uh, effort and, and uh, result that. Uh, enabled me to be close or equal, uh, that was a huge uh, help for my career. Now, which cars did you guys race? Because you raced Porsches in the early 60s, right? Did you guys race together in those, or was it some, um, what other cars? Cause... We raced uh, most, the most famous one, the one where we won the 1,000-kilometer race, was a Maserati Birdcage. Oh, really? Birdcage, okay. Now that essentially, because the Maserati Birdcage is is a neat little car, but it looks kind of spindly. It's a very deceiving car, but I mean, it's all put together, and and the reason it's called the Birdcage is because of all the the way the chassis is put together, all little webbing and stuff like that. Well, right, it has a lot of tubes in it. Yeah, but they were all maybe uh, no larger than five eighths of an inch in diameter. So, uh, it, but a very stout, very stiff, good chassis on it. And it was a, for a while, it was the best thing out there. Were the how did the Maseratis compare to let's say like the Ferraris in terms of reliability, dependability, um, back in those days? Ferrari had them covered on reliability, but the uh, the Maser uh, the Birdcage could lap a little bit quicker. Okay. And, uh, so that was an advantage then to you guys. Oh, you bet it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, then you got into uh, the GT cars, and then you got hooked up with what? Carroll Shelby in '65 was that when it was, or '66? Well, when the uh, when he got involved with the Cobra, right? Uh, I I was there in the very beginning of that, and uh, oh, in '62, '63, right? That's right. I forgot about that. Well, I actually helped him uh, uh, sort out some of the places where the the Corvette could handle us until we got the car dialed in a little bit more, and then uh, pretty soon it was the other way around. Cobra could smoke the Corvette. Now, what was the real advantage between the two cars? I mean, outside of the fact that the Cobra was a little lighter and then had uh, actually had a smaller displacement, didn't it? Yes. I think uh, with the tires that were available, the tires and wheels, why the, the Cobra had better rubber, it was lighter, probably had if not equal, or maybe even larger brakes and uh, less weight to work with. So uh, it was a really good combination, and it was uh, a lot of fun to drive. What are some of the other cars that you drove back then that you really enjoyed driving, some of the early uh, sports cars, when sports cars were sports cars and they were still part of the pioneering days? Well, one of the outstanding cars was designed by Colin Chapman of Lotus, mm-hmm. and, uh, who started the company Lotus. And the, there was one called the Lotus 19, and uh, I kind of could see the future coming in Europe, and uh, I talked Frank Arciero into making a commitment to buy one before it was sight unseen. None of them had been built yet, but I just had a lot of faith that uh, it was going to turn out, and of course it did. It turned out to be uh, a really outstanding car, even though it had a pretty small engine, two point two and a half liters. It would smoke all the Chevy-powered cars and uh, and a lot of you know, the four nine Ferraris and all the other things. It was just uh, sort of a, a new uh, generation of cars. Was it in the same class? Yeah, really. I mean, it was the top class, and there was 
you could it didn't matter you could go as big as you wanted engine wise and otherwise but uh this thing could handle them okay so what engine did you have in this one here a two and a half liter coventry climax oh really interesting um now when you this is is this while you were racing in the united states or did you race this kind of car over in europe as well I raced in the United States with that one. With that one, okay. But I could see other uh, Lotus cars and Coopers, uh, the Formula One cars uh, at that era, were uh, already uh, putting the front-engine cars. This, this was a mid- or a rear-engine car, uh, and uh, they made the front-engine cars obsolete. Okay. Your first F1 race, well, that was also, what, in the late 50s, too, wasn't it? Yes, 1959. Okay. And that was in a Ferrari, on the Ferrari team. And how did that ride come about? Well, it was that farm system I mentioned earlier, Luigi okay. Canetti, and uh, and finally uh, the word got around that uh, this California kid might be pretty good, and I was asked to come for a tryout in, in uh, Modena, Italy. Mm-hmm. And I flew over in a DC-7, and uh, which was about a 36-hour trip at the time. <laughs> okay. And I did a tryout and uh, managed to do well enough so that I was hired uh, to drive in some sports car races, world championship sports car races, and then halfway or the last five races of Formula One, I, I managed to... Uh, I get to drive Formula One for a Ferrari. Wow, that was super. And then you raced Formula One, what, on and off for a couple of years there, right? And it wasn't until, like, the mid-60s when I think you won your you uh, you won a championship, right? Well, I won, a, I won the Belgian Grand Prix with a car okay. that we built here in Santa Ana, California. Okay. And they had our own Gurney Westlake 12-cylinder, 3-liter engine in it. And... Uh, that was, uh, we also won another one called the Race of Champions, which was for Formula One, but it wasn't a full uh, certified Grand Prix, but it had all the usual suspects in it. And uh, so that was a, a real high point for us, uh, being uh, still pretty much high riders. Let me ask you a question. Now, when you, want, when you first campaigned the uh, Gurney Eagle, okay, and what was the foundation of the 12-cylinder motor? The, Westlake is a company in England, right? And you teamed up with them, or is Westlake here in the United States? I went to them. Went to them. And are they, they're overseas, right? They're in the U.K.? I was driving for Brabham, yes. Okay. We were in England, down in a, a little, just outside a little town called Rye, R-Y-E. And uh, it's, uh, I think it was the first incorporated village in, uh, in England. I mean, it was like... Uh, 11, um, probably early 1200s. So a lot of history there. Uh, okay, and then, so what was the foundation for the motor? Was the motor, 12, I mean, the 12-cylinder, was it, it was a scratch? A, it was a clean sheet of paper, and it was uh, it was to be small and, and, and uh, clean and uh, a three-liter. So... Uh, it started from zero, and uh, that was it. And we ended up, uh, I think they built six of them and quite a few other additional spares. But uh, 
it was a huge effort. And, uh, well, we were, uh, we're, we were working hard and uh, enjoying it very, very much. And uh, everybody was full of uh, enthusiasm for it. And uh, those were great times. The uh, when, now a couple of things. Let's digress just for a second. You got involved in NASCAR a little bit too. So how, that was like in the early '60s, right? That was in the early '60s. Yes. Okay. And then you raced for. And then you. How did you, your relationship with Ford come about? Uh, I think it was a result of working with the Cobra thing in the beginning. Okay. And. and uh, and I also drove a Chevrolet from Don Steve's Chevrolet, who used to campaign uh, Dino Don Nicholson, the drag racer. Right. Anyway, uh, I drove a Chevy. Uh, Bill Thomas built the engine or blueprinted the engine, and uh, we ran it in a USAC race at Riverside, and uh, I got disqualified, even though I won one heat and finished second in the other heat, and it, uh, Paul Goldsmith ended up uh, winning the race, but uh, that was the beginning of uh, stock car racing. No, actually, I, I raced once before in a Ford at Meadowdale, Illinois, and uh, that was a terrific weekend. Uh, that car normally was driven by Jerry Unser. And uh, he had to go to some family function, so uh, Troy Rutman, who was a friend of his and a close friend of mine, who I admired a great deal, uh, a great IndyCar driver. At the time, he was the youngest winner of Indy 500, um, said, why don't you get Dan to do it? So uh, I did. I went to uh, the Chicago airport and met the two... uh, mechanics that owned the car and helped campaign it for Jerry Unser and uh, it was uh, Bob Rose and can't think of his I'll think of it uh, <laughs> okay did you do any um, uh, work with uh, St- Bill Strope at that time did he prepare uh, any cars for you a little I was well aware of Bill Strop, but Strop, uh, that's it, yeah. no I didn't um, he had a shop down there on Signal Hill, which was a, a small, I guess they call them salt domes or something, but it was famous because when they drilled for oil there, they couldn't stop it. It was a gusher, and his oil was running down the streets and everything. <laughs> that was probably in the late 20s. And of course, they tell us we have a shortage. But, hey, uh, Dan, I got a question, an email here from a, from a, from a listener, and he says, Ask Dan about a gentleman by the name of Jim Heyer and the GT40. Is there a story associated with that? Jim Heyer, does that ring a bell? Jim Heyer, well, GT40s, of course, were very successful Ford. Uh, the GT40 was 40 inches high. That's how I picked the name. But uh, Or is it maybe he's get it mixed up with wire? Sorry, Jim Heyer, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, well, anyway, Alan, we can't answer that question right now, but he'll think about that. Maybe it's wire. I know there's John Wire because. Oh, John Wire, yeah. Maybe that's what it is. That you know, could be. Okay. Did you, were you affiliated with him? Did you do it? Because didn't Wire prepare some of the GT40s for the European? Uh... Yes, he did. Okay. John Wire was a very successful uh, former. Um, I guess he was with Aston Martin before he came to 
the Ford GT40 time, but they won Le Mans at least two times with a smaller engine, the, the uh, with the, like a 302 or a 289 Ford. In fact, they had our cylinder heads on. I was just going to say, Westlake cylinder heads. But yeah, the uh, what was the story on that? With the Gurney Westlake heads, were they on just the small blocks, or you put them on 427s also? No, just on the small blocks. Just on the small blocks, okay. And how did those heads work on there? They did evidently relatively well, didn't they? They did very well. Uh, in fact, uh, even the regular 289 or uh, 302 would, uh, if the race was very long, pretty soon the 427s would be uh, uh, burning up their tires and their, and their brakes, and uh, the, the 302 or the 289 would go by them. Anyway, it was uh, interesting. Uh, just a lot of horsepower doesn't always get the job done. That's true. You know what? It's funny. While we're on the subject of the GT40, isn't that where the gurney bubble came to in effect? Because supposedly, because of your height, because you're six foot two, I think, or something like that, yeah. and and you needed yeah. head clearance, so they had to modify the roof on a couple of the GT40 so you could drive them, right? Yeah, and uh, Phil Remington was the first one to do that because. Uh, once you, you took the seat out, you were sitting on the floor, and the, the seat back was not movable, so uh, <laughs> you, you're either going to drive with your head on one shoulder all the time for 24 hours, whatever it is, uh, or else put a bubble in. And Rem kind of uh, said, here, let me handle that. And uh, next thing you know, an uh, hour later, we had a really good-looking bubble, and it worked out beautifully. Well, I had the fortune of meeting uh, Phil Remington at one of the Shelby meets out in California uh, back, I think, in the early 2000s. And uh, he was an amazing man in the stories, you know. I mean, he was just he would just go in there. He was just a hell of a fabricator, and he would just get the job done. As a matter of fact, I was telling you a little bit earlier off air, there's a gentleman here in town. He's a real good friend of mine. His name's Frank Ibell, and he went out to California back in the early 60s and was there throughout the 72. And he used to work with Zeus Manufacturing or Zeus something or other. And I guess they sure, used to yeah, but, Zeus Buttons. And uh, so they were involved in, I guess, the Zeus, Zeus Plymouth Eagle. But anyway, he I told him that you were coming on the show tonight. He says, great, I'll be listening. He says, that man is a genius, referring to you. So yeah. you are, because he was telling me, so he says, ask Dan about all the, uh, the innovative stuff. Well, he has st- a judgment problem, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he thinks you're, uh, he's, you're held in higher regard. they got another friend of mine, Kenny. He's listening to the show, and he says, oh, my God, Dan Gurney, he's my idol. You know, So you've got a lot. you got a huge fan base out there again. Oh, but, that's awfully nice. Anyway, um, so tell us about your driving style. Now, I was reading another article there, um, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but you're such a fascinating guy. There's just so much. It's hard to cram it in a 30, 40-minute show, but we'll have definitely have you on again. So if you're willing to come on again, I'd love to have you on. But there's a story about the, uh, the you know, we talk about smooth drivers. You know, some drivers are a little hard on the car. Some guys are just fluid. And you've got the distinction of being a fluid driver. And one of the stories I read about you was something about you refer to it, and I, since it's a family show, we don't swear, but you call it the chicken poop style of racing, you know, chicken blank, blank, blank style of racing, because yeah, you evidently yeah. tap the brakes ahead of time. Tell us how that all came about. But you know what's funny? That's the way I drive. I tap them before I get to the, you know, the 300 mark, and then again, because it, it's just common sense, you know? But well, t- uh, that's a fairly long story, but uh, I lost the brakes on a, on a BRM. Uh, that's a Brabham, right? Single disc brake driven off the rear gearbox. Mm-hmm. It was a rear engine car, and it got overheated, and it was uh, fed by a 
front wheel rubberized tube. And when that got hot enough and you had to put enough pressure to go really, really deep trying to keep up or, or to break as deep as Sterling Moss was going, uh, I blew the hose off. And uh, that was a, an engineering that had been overlooked by the engineers as they, uh, as they uh, admitted later on. But uh, that that got to me because I ended up uh, in a serious accident, and uh, and one of the guys got killed in it, and it was uh, uh, so it 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 changed uh, my braking style quite a bit, as well as Indy did also. Uh, at, at Indy at the time, people didn't use the brakes as much as road racing guys did. And uh, it was just better and faster and easier to uh, be smooth and, and uh, arrive at the turn at exactly the right speed, which is pretty hard to do if you're really hard on the brakes. And uh, so all of those things had something to do with that uh, chicken style. <laughs> I, got another, I got another email here. This is Hank. Hank wants to know, and of course I'm a big Mercury fan too, the Trans Am Cougars. We want to know how the Gurney Cougar name appeared on the Cougars. Now we know you're involved in a Trans Am racing deal, and we know that at at uh, I don't know if you I played a little uh, clip from that in the segment in that in the show earlier. And uh, when you guys were out Kent Washington, and they pulled you in because of the uh, gas cap leaking, and then uh, you went out, and then that was that afforded uh, Buckham the win, and Mustang was able to take the uh, the championship that year um, over the Cougar. So you basically lost by gas tank gas filler cap default so to speak but technically you won the race in my opinion you know cougar was leading but uh how the whole thing with the uh, the gurney cougar thing and eventually they made a production car and it was labeled you know the gurney cougar uh, how'd that come about again that's your relationship with ford and lincoln mercury yes it was uh there was a a very uh terrific guy named uh uh-oh uh he was the head of the Lincoln Mercury division, and among other things, he he came up with the Lincoln Mercury Sports Panel, and I got to meet uh, people like Jesse Owens, the uh, the uh, Olympic champion from 1936. Uh, um, what's the golfer? Uh, she was Arnold Palmer. No, older uh, oh. Byron Nelson. Byron, okay. And uh, the hockey player. Uh, Couple other guys. <laughs> Gar Lowe was the name of the uh, Lincoln Mercury, the head of the Lincoln Mercury division. Now, and also I noticed uh, there was a huge rivalry between the Ford division and the Lincoln Mercury division. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was. They hated each other more than they hated Chevrolet at the time, you know. <laughs> Ford people did. So, I mean, that was part of corporate politics in those days. But anyway, Garlo and uh, I remember there was, a, 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 among others, on the uh, Lincoln Mercury Sports Panel was a guy named uh, Billy Waylu, who was a boxer, uh, uh, not a boxer, a bowler. And he used to talk about the tender touch that means so much. And that was uh, something that I've just remembered uh, all through it. But it was a real thrill to, uh, and uh, Bart Starr was on there also. But to get to know Jesse Owens and uh, 
Byron Nelson and those guys. It was really special. Okay, and then they just they picked you to to label the car. Then is that what it was because of the transistors? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Okay, I, it wasn't. It was in the the days before corporate America really uh, made great big things out of it, and uh, uh, I I was as surprised as anyone to see them uh, bringing out a Mercury Cyclone with my name on it. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I was so busy racing that I didn't really, uh, at least I don't recall exactly how that all happened. Well, at least you have another car named after you. Hey, Dan, we got, we're, we're running out of time here, and it's, but I, there's another quick story I want to hear, if you can do it, and that's about the uh, spraying the champagne bottle and how that all came about, because you're very famous for that. And I guess that's evidently been a tradition since the mid-60s, since you started that, right? Isn't that amazing? Yes. So how'd that come about? What happened there? Well, there are many things involved, <laughs> but... Uh, You're on the podium. It was about, yeah, it was uh, my 10th attempt, and A.J. and I and uh, Ford Mark IV uh, blew away the existing records by a huge margin, and there were lots of uh, Ford people there, lots of GIs over there, and it was a huge day for AJ and me and the whole uh, the Ford team. And we were just—I uh, don't know—we uh, were up there on the on that uh, raised platform, and there were lots of uh, uh, camera people below, journalists and everything. And uh, to me, they looked expectant, and uh, in fact. Uh, Hank the Deuce, or Henry Ford II, was there with his new bride, and uh, and and the Ferrari team was second, and they were standing there also, and they handed me this big, gigantic uh, bottle, the champagne bottle, and uh, it just occurred to me, why don't I shake it and spray it, and that's when it happened. The rest is history. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Dan, I certainly am thrilled to have had you on the show. Would you be willing to come on again? Because there's so much more I didn't get to cover. I know I sent you a few questions earlier, and I have a whole list, and I got some other emails. But uh, would you be willing to come on again in the future? Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'd. Uh, what I'll do is go uh, discuss it with the people uh, writing our book, and yep. then we'll, uh, we'll let you know what we think. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. My guest tonight was... Uh, it's great that you're... Uh, doing uh, nostalgic things and uh, of course we old fogies like that so you are the legend very much all right thanks for coming on the show hey everybody tune in next week to nostalgic radio and cars seven o'clock my special guest next week is brock yates and his wife pam it should be a great show and it's off the naughty nancy's for open mic night and everybody stay safe drive carefully and again dan gurney the legendary american racing driver my idol thanks for coming on the show Next week, guys.